Welcome to Slovo, the podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. I'm your host, Hala Bearden, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dmitry Buzadzhu. Dmitry graduated from Moscow State Linguistic University with a graduate degree in translation, interpretation, and intercultural communication. As a professional translator, he has worked on projects in a variety of fields, including trade journalism, promotional materials, websites, documentaries, movies, memoirs, and fiction. He also works as an interpreter for organizations and businesses in Russia and the U.S. Additionally, Dmitry has been an active translator and interpreter trainer, having taught various TNI courses at Moscow State Linguistic University and other Russian universities. For the past several years, he's been a visiting professor of interpretation and Russian at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey in California. We're excited that Dimitri will be appearing as the SLD's distinguished speaker at the upcoming 63rd annual ATA conference in Los Angeles in October. And now, on with the show. Dimitri, welcome to Slovo. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get started with kind of the traditional first question that we ask all of our guests, namely, how did you get into translation and interpretation in the first place? Um, I suppose a mixture of chance and design. Uh, I would say that on the one hand, growing up, I was interested in foreign languages. And that's something that I owe to my parents because they are both actually trained as uh, I think they, their degree is actually in um, well in teaching yes and it's a it's a in teaching uh, foreign languages although they have never taught foreign languages but they have worked as translators and interpreters and I have a degree in translation and interpretation and I have done a lot of teaching so some irony here but anyway uh, growing up I often heard my parents use their French uh, for foreign language and it I was completely fascinated by that it seemed like a superhuman ability to be able to speak and read a, a language that is like a secret language to the uninitiated one and I think that sparked my interest and then through a number of you know situations uh, I ended up applying and being admitted to a high school, a very good high school in Moscow at the time that was uh, affiliated with Moscow State Linguistic University, which was and is uh, perhaps the the leading uh, higher education institution in, in Russia in terms of teaching translation and interpretation. So once I was uh, in that high school, my education path was kind of uh, carved out for me. Uh, and, you know, made perfect sense to move uh, on and then to apply to MSLU and uh, to the main school that it's known for, the Translation and Interpretation School. Uh, and thankfully, I realized that Translation and Interpretation is something that I really enjoy doing because, like many people, I'm sure around the world, I didn't really have a, an idea of what the Translation and Interpretation actually meant when I became a first-year student. I think, like most people, I just thought it was some kind of a, an offshoot of being able to speak foreign language as well. And it wasn't until the third year of uh, studies that we started having 
classes in translation and translation theory. First two years are dedicated to languages mostly. Uh, and, and then I realized it was in some ways very different from what I had expected, but it was enjoyable, it was interesting. So I never regretted. But some people actually do realize uh, at some point that uh, TNDI classes are not what they were expecting when they um, applied to a TNI school. And these people are disappointed. Thankfully, it was not my case. A long okay. answer to a very <laughs> short and reasonable question. No, uh, very interesting to hear all of that. So thank you very much. So you have a degree as a specialist, which is the in the US, so it'd be the equivalent of a master's degree in interpretation and translation and intercultural communication from Moscow State Linguistic University. And then you also went on to pursue a PhD there. Is that right? That is right. Yes. So what motivated you to go on and do the PhD degree? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what motivated me, but it will probably sound strange uh, to people listening. Uh, no problem. Tell us. <laughs> I mean, uh, really, it was just the fact that I loved the, the, the environment, the school so much that I didn't want to leave when it was my time to graduate. Uh, I realized that I had some great professors. Uh, we, we were, as, as I was working on my, you know, graduation paper, the, the capstone project and just getting to be treated more as a future colleague than a student. Uh, I just realized how how much I just loved this atmosphere of professionalism of really smart people who uh, cared about what they did. So it's not that I specifically wanted to become some kind of a researcher, uh, or that I had to have a PhD. It's just that really, I just was thinking, is that it? Am I supposed to just leave in a, in a month and never come back? No, no, I don't like that. And so when somebody at the department suggested that I could stay and uh, do a PhD, that was my main reason for saying, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. If that grants me entry to, to the building for three more years. Uh, so. That was the main motivator, uh, motivation. But then, it, uh, but it was really a very interesting project, and I did uh, get very involved with uh, what I was working on. And I'm, you know, I don't think that it's not that now I look uh, at my dissertation, my thesis, and think that it was silly or not worth the time I spent on it. I'm quite happy with it. Great. And so, what was your dissertation about? Um, it was about a literary device uh, called, in Russian, astranenie, uh, which is often rendered as estrangement in English. And it's a very, or, you know, sometimes I think it's like defamiliariz defamiliarization or something like that. And it's a very interesting subject, really, because uh, the was quite a body of work dedicated to that, especially in the first half of the 20th century, and different people meant it a little differently, some in a purely 
you know, philosophical, aesthetic kind of way, you know, the, the way the author looks at his work or, or, or something. But I was more interested in a purely linguistic manifestation of uh, estrangement, which basically means that if you want to portray something familiar as something that is not, that's something that might appear funny or strange or dubious, you can use more general terms. You can use more abstract terms to describe familiar activities, familiar subjects. And that creates a very interesting, very powerful effect. It's not a metaphor. It's not an epithet. It's not that you're using some strong language. It's not that you're comparing things to things. You're just taking a couple of steps back. You're pretending not to recognize the things that you're writing about. And without saying much, this actually creates a very um, strong effect. Sometimes it's used for comic effect, but oftentimes it's used as a uh, vehicle for um, um, social criticism, so to speak. Tolstoy was a big uh, fan of that, or Kurt Vonnegut, who is perhaps my favorite uh, American uh, writer. And, you know, so, uh, like, for instance, instead of saying that we're here, sitting here doing an interview, I, I would be saying, you know, I sit at a desk looking at a gray box of metal and glass um, talking to a face that moves on a flat surface. And, you know, this is an entirely different thing than just saying I'm having a video conference on Zoom. Uh, the, the reason why I chose that is because these things sometimes get lost in literary translation because translators who don't know better, if I may, might just assume that they can just, you know, be more specific. Oh, that's he's talking about a video conference. So let me just say that uh, I'm, I'm talking to someone on Zoom. Uh, here, I found a more economical way of putting that. Well, perhaps not quite to this degree, but sometimes it does get lost. Sometimes that stylistic nuance, uh, the deliberate decision to not use the established names, the established words, uh, can get lost in translation if the translator is only looking for, you know, factual equivalence. Oh, okay, so he, he's talking about this. Let's just write something that's more specific, which sometimes actually is the right thing to do, but not when the author deliberately uses estrangement. So I hope that makes sense. So that that was my uh, my the gist of my research. Definitely. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. So your dissertation focused on this literary translation device. Uh, yeah. And then, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, you've done a really wide variety of projects when it comes to uh, working professionally as a translator. So that includes some literary translation, if I'm not mistaken, of short stories. And then and novels and not novels and kind of running the whole gamut. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about all of that? And if there's maybe a, an especially memorable translation project that you've worked on in any of those areas? Uh, I was thinking about that question because you sent me a list of questions in, in advance. And that was perhaps the only question that I didn't have a good answer to, or at least you know, I didn't, didn't immediately come up with uh, what I was going to say, because I just don't know, memorable in what way. I obviously remember many of my translation uh, projects for different reasons. Some were hard, some were very annoying, some got 
paid really well. Others were, I don't know, interesting because they taught me something because, you know, I had to research and, you know, or meet some specifically stringent criteria. But it's not that something stands out like, oh, I translated the constitution of that little state and now they use my translation. I, it's, not, it's not that I can point out something like that. So I thought maybe I will just say that I'm thinking about the, the, the things that I had the most fun when I translated them. And these are not really assignments. And I don't know to what extent people do that. I don't know, outside of Russia, I'm assuming they do. But um, as you know, writers, for example, they don't, some, they don't always write to get published, right? Sometimes people write things just because they want to get them out. Right. And probably thinking they might be able to publish it at some point, but it's not the point. And translators sometimes do the same thing as well. Sometimes you just want to translate something because it's, you know, gives you great joy to uh, to work with that material. Even if you realize that there's no chance that it's going to be published or broadcast or paid for by anyone. Uh, so I'm just thinking, uh, thinking about your question, I thought about um, the times where when I translated some of Monty Python's sketches into Russian, uh, where I translated and sort of revoiced them, sometimes working with my colleague, my former professor, who was also a big fan. And, you know, he also, I kind of got him on board too, and he did some sketches and I did some sketches and then I voiced some of them and we voiced some of them uh, together. Uh, voicing was essential because in, a, in audiovisual translation, especially in something that is, you know, condensed pure genius like Monty Python, it has to work exactly right. You, you can't just subtitle, even if your subtitles are great, they're not going to work well enough. You know, you have to just get the intonation right, the timing, everything, and the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, you, you can't, you can only see if your uh, translation works if you can hear. Uh, what it's going to be like on, on, on the screen. So we uh, recorded our voices and it was just such a, a blast. And then also along the same lines, uh, there's this movie I absolutely love called Noises Off. Um, I absolutely recommend anyone listening to this <laughs> to drop everything and, and watch it. Uh, I'm linking on the name of the director. It's a famous director. I just um, just too flustered. I can't remember the name of the director, but he's also the director of uh, Paper Moon uh, and some other classics. Uh, it's based on a play by Michael Frayn, and it's just it's just brilliant, brilliant from from all angles. You know, the dialogue, the the, the acting. It's a it's a play or a movie about a play. So it's it's also like a meta play, you know, on how uh, actors are rehearsing a play and then performing it when things start go wrong and then performing it when things really start going wrong. Uh, and it, it's just it's dialogue. It's it's brilliant. So I it took me like, I think, six months to completely transcribe it, translate it, revoice it, and to be able to show it to a couple of non English speaking uh, friends and family members to 
tell them, see, see, I told you, it's genius. I don't know, uh, good memories. Wow, both of those projects do sound like a lot of fun. And I, I mean, I wish I could see your Monty Python sketches um, translated and voiced into Russian. Did you ever share those with anyone or like try to post um, them anywhere I probably, online? I probably, uh, it's probably illegal, but actually if you, uh, if, if you go to the website, uh, thinkaloud.ru, uh, a, a very dated looking website with um, uh, many pieces of uh, translation and adaptation related research that I and some of my colleagues started in 2006. And if you go to the Pirivode translations uh, section, you will have links to some of those skits we did. If they're still live, you can you can see the the the, the technical the, the technical quality is atrocious. Back then, uh, you know, I had very little idea of you know how to work with different video formats, how to record properly. So, excuse, pardon our look, but. Uh, you can hear what we came up with yes that's very cool i will definitely check that out later make sure uh, you send me a note telling me what <laughs> i will do that yeah so that that was super interesting to hear um so now let's move kind of in the direction of interpreting so you also work as an interpreter and you have russian as your a language uh, English is your B and German is your C. Is that right? Yes. Although I, you know, for full disclosure, uh, I haven't worked with German nearly as much as with English and um, mostly only as a translator. So my interpretation uh, career has been entirely with English. And you said um, at Moscow State Linguistic University, the first two years of the program were focused mostly on building language skills. And after that, you started doing more translation and interpreting theory. Right. So did you have did you learn English and or German at all before you started at Moscow State? Or did you kind of pick it all up in the first two years of the program? Uh Yes, yes. Uh, my, I mean, things have changed since then, because since then we have been through many different reforms of higher education and another one is coming. So, but the, the overall structure, I think, yeah, is still there. And it's quite interesting. I think it would be pretty uh, bizarre to uh, an American uh, uh, listening to this, because I, I was lucky that way I had both English and German uh, at school. Uh, only German was my sort of first foreign language, as we say in Russian, and English was my second. And then I had to switch at some point. And so uh, at MSLU, yes, English was my first foreign language, German second foreign language. So I was a very smooth transition. But uh, Moscow, the, the TNI school of Moscow State Linguistic University, teaches around 20 different languages uh, on an annual basis. Some, some of these languages are not offered every year, but it's more than 20. And a, as you can, and, and the, uh, a huge difference between, let's say, you know, what you have in the United States is that uh, almost 99%, 99.99% of your uh, students are Russian, 
Russians, ordinary Russian boys and girls who were born and raised in Russia with no, you don't have any immigrants from Germany or immigrants from England uh, or Korea learning the language of their forefathers. Uh, surely Russia has many immigrants, but mostly not from those countries. Anyway, so everyone who wants to be, almost everyone who wants to be a translator or interpreter in Russia will have learned that language or those foreign languages, you know, from scratch as a Russian speaker. Uh, and as I said, I was lucky because I had both of those languages at school, but, you know, not all of those 20 languages are routinely offered at schools. So for most people uh, who uh, get accepted to MSLU, they get assigned their B language just like that, or C. Well, they all get English, but the other language can be anything. It could be Turkish, it could be Korean, Portuguese, Danish, Norwegian, and so on and so forth. And sometimes people are a little surprised, let's say, uh, and some people complain. Some people try to switch. Uh, it's not always possible. And it's a state, uh, it's a budget-funded uh, school, so you don't pay for your education, but you don't get to choose much. But then, uh, in many cases, it leads to some very interesting careers. People, you know, they still live in those old paradigms where, I don't know, English and French and German, maybe Spanish are the good languages and everything else. But it doesn't mean that you can find work with some of these languages. And sometimes uh, a language like Korean or Turkish or Chinese, obviously, can lead to very interesting internships, uh, study abroad, um, very interesting job offers, and people really fall in love with the languages that were at some point just assigned to them. That sounds, yeah, that sounds very interesting. I can imagine that that would lead to interesting places. Uh, so in terms of interpreting assignments that you've worked on, um, whether it was a kind of big event like the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, or whether it was something smaller scale, maybe between businesses, is there anything that stands out to you as memorable or especially fun or especially difficult? Uh, yes. Well, again, many things are memorable for many different reasons. Some of them purely internal because, you know, I was very afraid and then nothing bad happened or something. Not very interesting for anyone else. But uh, I was thinking that uh, there was a very interesting sort of segment of, uh, of assignments and something that, well, at least people, my colleagues with, with, with my language combinations in Russia wouldn't really appreciate because in, 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 in Russia, uh, people with English and German and Spanish and French and yada yada, they m are mostly trained, although th this, this word, this word combination is not used that much, but they mostly trained as conference interpreters. The idea is that it's for, you know, conferences and business negotiations, business meetings, working with some dignitaries, um, big shots, discussing lofty matters of policy, and so on and so forth. And this whole idea of, you know, community interpreting, medical interpreting, it's relatively new in Russia. It's not, you know, for different reasons, it was not a thing. And it's becoming a thing. But again, 
mostly with different languages song goes there but uh when i first moved to the united states and was trying to to see what i could do there i still worked as a translator for uh my previous clients but i wanted to find something to do here and uh i did do some again community interpreting and medical interpreting and you know legal interpreting at depositions very poorly paid very poorly paid but that was not the point the point was it was an entirely new world it was an entirely new type of assignments entirely different people not dignitaries not big shots uh people in entirely different niches of society people often in in pretty dire life situations something that you don't even imagine let alone experience in your comfortable kind of bubble of conference interpreting there was this one episode where i had to well i mean through me uh being the mouthpiece uh, a doctor's mouthpiece i had to tell a pregnant woman that uh, her baby was going to be born with a very bad uh, genetic disorder and it was I think too late to do anything about it and they hadn't been diagnosed before and so they were telling her now oh you know your baby has this and it's not going to be good and it's it's not a very pleasant situation to be in and again something that your previous training doesn't really prepare you for and it did involve a lot of scientific stuff as well you know the, the explanation about chromosomes and genes and uh, egg cells and so on but on the other hand you you, you see this uh, woman who's pretty grief-stricken and in disbelief and so on and you obviously you remain neutral and so on but it's a very different uh, situation psychologically so yes and some other examples again people feeling really upset about the things they were discussing through an interpreter people being very defensive and you know all kinds of situations that conference interpreters never encounter uh, lucky them community interpreting certainly can involve many interesting situations so as i mentioned before also you not only work as a translator and interpreter, but you also teach a lot of prospective translators and interpreters. And right now you're a visiting professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey. And I was wondering if you have any uh, favorite courses to teach. Actually, let's, no, let's back up. What got you interested in training and teaching translators and interpreters in addition to working as one yourself um <laughs> you know you know how like girls play with dolls and you know they have like a tea ceremony or maybe a, a store or a, a library <laughs> role-playing <laughs> you know what gets them interested in that i, I it's not that i played uh at school you know when i was small but i, I might have been because I, I think it's just you know something that some people hate teaching and i think i've always kind of liked 
the idea of explaining things to people or trying to make sense of um, something by imagining that I'm trying to teach someone. So um, it's definitely something that's in my nature. I, I, you know, it's not that somebody forced me into this line of work. And I know people who are brilliant, you know, translators, interpreters, and other professionals, but who just don't want to have anything to do with teaching, and they just think it's a chore. And you know, to... but uh, as I said, since I didn't want to leave my alma mater and wanted to stay, I did a PhD. And when you are doing a PhD, you're supposed to uh, do some teaching. Uh, so again, it was a, a natural thing for me to do. And I started small teaching, just a class or two per week, and then it got bigger. Um, so yeah, it was one thing led to another. Yeah, that's how it often happens, I guess. So what brought you to the Middlebury Institute? Hmm. Vicissitudes of fate. Uh, well, as I said, uh, I came to the United States. There were a number of reasons why that happened. And I wanted to, well, I knew that if I was to stay for any length of time, I had to find something that's in my field uh, to do here. It's not a great uh, business proposition to get paid in rubles and spend that money in dollars. You know, it's usually <laughs> better the other way around. <laughs> Definitely. But, uh, yeah. So um, at some point, I don't know if you're aware of this name, but uh, many, especially older uh, uh, specialists and you know, Russian and I and language teaching would know who Lynn Visson is. She is a legendary uh, interpreter, uh, Russian. She's a US-based uh, Russian and French interpreter who has a very long, very eventful career at the UN and who's been in all of the important junctures of Soviet and Russian history, interpreting for, you know, all the top people and who's written textbooks on interpretation and, and, and language learning. So I, it was just, you know, so happened that I had met her before coming to, uh, to New York uh, while still in Moscow. And then at some point I sort of uh, let her know that I was in her city now and we met we chatted and then at some point later she introduced me to uh the uh program coordinator of russian tndi at ms who was as luck would have it uh looking for a professor because well i mean it's probably probably should should say that that's it you know i was the best choice so she hired me but uh i was going to say that uh, Monterey, for all of its uh, for all of its um, glory, as a TNI school, is not uh, a very I think easy uh, location for many people to work in because it's um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a very small uh, town. Um, 
people don't just happen to live there so that if they if they if you hire them they have to relocate and if you know people can have all the different reasons why they would love to teach there but they can't really move there and i was in a situation where you know i didn't have any specific roots in the united states i could not just teach a, a semester or a course i could actually move uh, so all the pieces of the puzzle fell together that seems to be a common theme among the translators and interpreters that i've talked to where if you ask them how they ended up getting into a certain specialization or getting a certain job it really comes down to yeah it just it just kind of happened the pieces kind of fell into place but yeah very very interesting that's probably the way life is well yeah. i don't know maybe it's different for i don't know programmers and uh, i don't know mathematicians but in my opinion in our line of work you know things everything depends on on you know who you know who your contacts are who happens to say something to someone that you know involves you or vice versa you don't get anywhere by i don't know writing resumes or maybe that's just uh, my take on it but i just think that we are in this very interesting field you know more like we're more like artisans so it's, uh, it's less about uh those typical marketing channels and more about being at the right place at the right time and uh, trying to let people know that you can do a good job you know so you know and, and then at some point some, sometimes things work out when you least expect them to true that's what i tell my students at least you know to get, keep their uh, hopes up so of the courses that you teach at miss and also if you want to you can include courses that you taught before at mslu or other russian universities do you have a favorite course to teach a favorite course you've taught one that was especially fun uh especially challenging or you had especially interesting students mm. i've had all of that uh, fun challenging and interesting students so let me just maybe quickly uh, give you several examples here at Ms. one uh one very interesting course that i you know it's a love and hate relationship not love love but i mean it's 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 very fun it's it's very interesting it's very special sometimes it's very trying uh but it was really new to me and i, I you know that that was not invented by me it was uh created by uh, people who started this course before my time of course but it's uh called practicum and interpretation this bland name belies the complexity of the course it's uh, an attempt at giving students a chance to practice their interpretation skills while still on campus but in settings that are as realistic as possible and it has many different areas that, that we do uh one of the most important branches is that w whenever we would have something happening on campus in uh, rooms equipped for simultaneous interpretation we would try to get our students there so that they could interpret sometimes they would be asked by organizers to provide an interpretation into some languages sometimes 
we'll just uh, ask them to you know allow us to be there and, and have our students practice and you know have, allow people in the room to listen if they so choose uh sometimes it would be uh events organized by our institute like starting from lectures but sometimes it would be external events because sometimes our premises are used for you know community gatherings and local film festivals and so on and and, all, and this is extremely helpful in my opinion because students get to work with real sort of speeches that were not pre-selected for their benefit by their professors with speakers who don't necessarily care at all about you know what the interpreters are doing and how they're going to handle this or that uh it's pressure it's you know learning how to work with a booth partner how to work with uh, the chief interpreter how to be there on time uh you know that's a great way to introduce people to the realities of work life and it also involves some other things some special workshops and field trips we organize for our students uh, so that we can the idea is mostly that we try to introduce them to different situations that are real realistic but that they don't necessarily have in their language specific classes for example we would take them uh, to the local waste management facility uh, where they do tours for the public uh, telling people about all kinds of trash and you know how it gets separated and treated and uh, you know involves touring some pretty smelly facilities and uh, all of our students would be interpreting that consecutively for their classmates uh, not just learning again practicing their consecutive skills but also learning to to move quickly to find the right spot where they can hear what the speaker is saying and be heard by their audience learning to work when there's background noise when there's dust when there are unpleasant smells or what have you again you know you can't smell up your classroom quite as realistically <laughs> uh so uh this is a yeah so sometimes it it's it's a handful but i'm sorry but sometimes uh it's a really rewarding course to teach and it allows you to be inventive you know every year we try things a little differently it was a huge challenge when everything had to be switched re to remote but again we had to make do and introduce students to rsi work and so on uh, but i would also like to say that i enjoy teaching some uh russian courses as russian as a foreign language especially at a more advanced level especially because the official policy here at MIS is that we don't use textbooks for especially for advanced levels which is um which makes your work more difficult on the one hand but more interesting on the other hand uh you have to find authentic materials and um you need to vary things from semester to semester from year to year and i have developed several courses where we they're dedicated to russian but uh it's a russian i don't know through the prism of intertextuality if you will uh russians as you probably know uh love to quote things they quote you know movies poems uh some punchlines from well-known novels soviet jokes and so on and so forth uh, and many 
of these things, they they get completely lost on non-native speakers of Russian. People have no clue why something just came up. Uh, so we had courses dedicated to some seminal, you know, movies, texts, sometimes events in history where students would research these things, watch these things, read these things in their uh, at home and find examples of how references to that uh, are used in uh, present day journalism and blog posts, posts and, you know, what, how people talking and writing today uh, draw on that material for making a point and what they mean by that and why something is funny, why something evokes a whole string of associations. I don't know about my students, but I quite enjoyed those courses. <clears throat> that does sound like a lot of fun. And on the topic of teaching Russian and developing Russian language courses, you also developed a Russian course specifically for UN translators and interpreters. Is that right? Yes. Um, was Yes. Well, it's it did happen. It was just that I was approached when I was still based in New York to yeah to, to do like a language Russian language refresher kind of course for yeah for uh, translators and interpreters in obviously non-Russian booths. Uh, well, I mean, interpreters in non-Russian booths and translators working with Russian at the UN. And um, yeah, I tried to to do what I could because I realized that uh, I was w going to work with formidable professionals who know a lot. And, you know, I can't, there are things that they know better than I do or things that uh they've been doing for, for for years and years so i did try to to find ways of looking at things that could be interesting and kind of helpful to them as tni professionals uh, it, it's a again it's a very frequent topic i think for tni professors in russia and probably elsewhere is that there's teaching a foreign language and there's teaching a foreign language to translators and interpreters to can be there, there can be important differences here and many people who teach foreign languages they don't really know uh, what TNI is all about they don't know what to focus on they um, might focus on entirely different things and miss you know the obvious applications that we need to do our work so I tried to put together a whole range of different you know, assignments and authentic texts and authentic developments, but always bearing in mind that, you know, we're talking about things that are currently used that can be challenging, where uh, an equivalent might be not so easy to find or where something might sound like it means something important, but in reality is just a, a vogue word for something much simpler than that and trying to show what can be used in translation or interpretation or has been used, you know, by translators and interpreters working with these texts. And in addition to developing courses and teaching the classroom, you also have a YouTube channel where you talk about uh, translation and interpretation theory and strategies. So how did you, how and when did you end up starting that? And what was your idea and goal behind that? 
Sure, I'll be happy to tell you. <laughs> Stop me when it gets boring. Uh, but really, several things. So on the one hand, and this is a this is the the result of you know the work of two people. So it's me and my friend and colleague Alexander Shane, who was my classmate at MSLU, and um, he he is more of a he practices more than he teaches, but he's also interested in in that side of the things. Uh, so when you have this thing in you where where you want to not just translate but also or interpret but also you know you, you want to be able to explain how it works and why some solutions are better than some others and you know be able to teach people and so on and so forth you find outlets for this desire to share things with people i have written quite a number of different articles and it was fun enough uh, but there's only so much you can do with articles that's just plain text. Sometimes you have to wait, I don't know, several months before you finish your article and it gets published. There's almost never any feedback. You just, what's the expression? Uh, send your bread upon the waters. Yeah, nothing comes back. Uh, anyway, so it, it, it is a release in, in a way, but it's not all that re rewarding. Uh, and so I think at some point, we, and also since, you know, with the current proliferation of YouTube and so on, and you have so many great educational videos there, uh, which you sometimes watch because, you know, for your other interests, like hobby related and so on. And you see that people um, are doing these great things free of charge that help you as an amateur uh, get a handle on, on on something where you wouldn't necessarily want to enroll in an official course and, and so on and so forth. So at some point, uh, I had this idea, you know, what if we do something like what we enjoy watching, but on our uh, on our topic in, in our in our field? And given that there was nothing and probably still is nothing uh, in, in in you know in Russian on on YouTube on, on that. Uh, not a consistent channel with uh, the same kind of focus, just individual lectures shot with, you know, iPhones from weird angles here and there, but nothing uh, consistent. So that was one thing. Uh, and uh, so our channel is going to be three years in a month, uh, uh, which means that I first got the idea four years ago. So it was almost a year in the making because I talk to Alexander to Sasha and he said oh yeah great in theory but you know let's discuss it at some later point and then we discussed it at some later point and then I shot a trial video of myself trying to explain something I showed it to him and some other people and they said that's terrible it's so boring you know you don't really <laughs> expect people to to watch this do you uh, uh, and then we talked about you know how things could be made a little more fast-paced and uh, interesting and, and then yeah and then at some point we got together and also it's interesting because we like playing with technology and since it's only us it's completely you know free uh, pro bono uh, it, the fun side of it is that we get to do everything ourselves we had to figure out how to shoot uh, what to do about the light how to edit uh, what we wanted and 
it was such a great excuse to um, fool around with the editing software. Yeah, so that's that's how it started, and um, I think we've been modestly successful. We have a very very narrow niche of people who might care for something like that, but uh, I think that it looks like most groups of people who uh, are based in Russia and who are translators and interpreters or studying it or teaching it, they, I think, are aware of our channel, which is mm, nice to know. Yeah, and for any listeners who are interested in checking the channel out, it's called Pirovodjiv, and you can just search that on YouTube. They have a lot of great content. You'll have quite a number of, of videos already, and yeah, very informative, often entertaining. So definitely check that out. Now, switching gears to our final topic for this podcast episode. As I mentioned earlier, Dimitri will be our distinguished speaker at the upcoming ATA conference, and you'll be giving two talks, um, one on interpreting as acting and one on uh, anticipation in simultaneous interpreting. So if you don't mind, could you give us a quick sneak peek um, of these two talks you'll be giving for all of our listeners who are looking forward to hearing you when you speak at ATA 63? Sure, sure. Uh, or you might just listen to this podcast and not go <laughs> get all the uh, most important uh, <clears throat> details there. But uh, yeah, so the first one, uh, it's not just interpretation, translation, interpretation is acting. It's um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a topic I have been thinking about quite a lot, and it's, it's interesting because it might sound a little uh, fanciful, but it's not. And uh, I was trying to come up with a, with, a, with a topic that wouldn't be too technical, you know, given that there might be people from, you know, different fields and who don't necessarily want to hear about translation or necessarily about interpretation or necessarily about you know how to deal with the structure that begins with this word uh but something that is not just you know bland as bland as you know a good translator has to know everything and uh, be a good professional and render the meaning and also style and, you know uh, so uh so this seemed like a, a good uh, a good uh angle but the, the, the mo most important uh, idea here is that um, translation and interpretation, surely it's about knowing at least one foreign language well and your own language well and having some kind of a um, transfer competence, I suppose it would be called by some researchers. You have to have some knowledge or at least intrinsic understanding of how you move from certain structures in your source language to certain structures in your target language. And of course, you have to know the rules of the trade, uh, how to communicate with everyone involved in the process, and all of that. But even that is not enough. And yeah, you know, obviously, background knowledge and so on. And at some point, I, I realized, and also, there are other people who have been thinking along these lines as well. I'm not saying that I was the first one to come up with this idea. Is that uh, on top of everything else, or actually below everything else, you have to genuinely want to and be able to play the role of the author that you are translating or interpreting. It's not just sort of being somebody. And I'm 
probably more mostly talking about non purely technical texts sure uh but not just necessarily lit literary journalism and even like trade journalism everything that has at least some kind of a human element uh would uh, be relevant here so you apart from all of that very helpful very necessary knowledge you have to play the role you, you, you have to uh put yourself in that person's shoes and try to see where they're coming from what they're trying to do what, what they're trying to tell uh the, the 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 readers and and why and what is this sentence is this is this just just you know neutral is this an attempt at being pompous is it an attempt to take a hidden swipe at someone is this supposed to what kind of a reaction is that supposed to invoke uh, evoke uh, elicit and sometimes and again it might still at, at this point might, um, might seem that i'm still saying pretty basic things only phrasing them differently but not necessarily and i hope that i will be able to demonstrate because sometimes especially of course with uh, literature and uh, audiovisual translations you sometimes even have to like stand up and act out a piece of the dialogue for example because you, you're looking at a phrase you can't get the words right you think that you have the meaning everything is correct there's there are no mistakes here but it just doesn't work the the, the words seem flat you, you don't like Stanislavski said I don't believe this don't it's not convincing and then you try to say it in, in in the intonation that you think would work here you try to say it as if you're talking to someone and you arrive at a certain turn of phrase at a certain rhythm or whatever that you, you couldn't have just deduced theoretically from all the different transfer mechanisms you, you, you in interpretation that's sometimes even more palpable because everything is so ephemeral you know words that you don't get to stare at them for a long time you don't get to work with all of the dictionaries with all of the resources you have to come up with uh, solutions on the spot both in simul and in consecutive and i've seen many people fascinatingly who are pretty good in terms of you know their command of the languages their the sharpness of their brains and and, and everything but who just I don't know for some reason balk at becoming someone else they just the, 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 there's this disconnect between them and the person they're trying to interpret and, and they keep missing or distorting essential things not because there's some theory they haven't learned in my opinion it's mostly because for some reason they they can't or won't or won't at this point really become that person for for, for a while and really try to understand everything every little gesture every little uh innuendo every little note of exasperation that might be in the speaker's voice and why it is there and what the speaker is trying to say only then can you hope to have a reasonably uh working interpretation given the scarcity of your tools because you don't have enough time you don't, you don't know all the words you, you miss things but at least you have to be on the same wavelength Right? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I'll try to I'll, I'll speak about that, and I'll use some interesting quotes from Stanislavski, which I believe are very relevant for TNDI training. Uh, it's just you know it's interesting how 
these worlds are related and we'll try to show using some examples what I mean. And, and the other one is going to be more traditional, I think, in terms of its focus. I'm going to talk about anticipation, which is, which means, you know, the ability of the interpreter to predict what's coming, uh, which is really essential, has something to do with, uh, with, again, acting in terms of, you know, the interpreter is not just someone, it's not just a computational machine that works with algorithms and words and changes words into words. I mean, uh, Google can do these things much better than we do and at zero cost. So if that were the only thing that we do, we would be obsolete now. But there's much more to translation and interpretation than just clever algorithms. Uh, and one of the things that you have to happen when you're doing interpretation, especially simultaneous interpretation, but consecutive as well, although it's less evident there, is that you have to have a an idea of what's coming. And there are ways of uh, either enhancing your ability to anticipate and that enhances the quality of this anticipation. Or, you know, if you're absolutely cavalier about it or uh, completely uninterested, uh, there are many ways in which you can undermine your interpretation by just sort of not expecting anything, you know, well, I'll hear a word, I'll interpret it, but that's not good enough. Uh, and again, I'll explain the theory behind anticipation, try to explain why it's not as miraculous as it might seem for you to know what's coming, it just depends on, on, on what we're talking about at different levels. and and show some examples, explain why it's uh, such an essential skill. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that little sneak peek with us. Um, we're definitely looking forward to hearing your talks at ATA 63. And that wraps up our discussion for today. So thank you so much, Dimitri, for appearing on the podcast and chatting about all of the <laughs> translation and interpretation related things that we got to discuss today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning into Slovo, the podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. If you enjoyed this show, we invite you to subscribe and listen to past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thank you for joining us.